Well, we're going to receive communion this morning, and Patty and I just got back from not only a vacation time, but we actually went to a conference in San, uh, San Diego. And uh, just so you don't feel too bad, the weather all over North America is a rather a little cool this year, so uh, you, you don't feel like you missed out, because you didn't. You know, you, I was looking and checking. You had nice weather here at times, and we had nice weather there, and sometimes it wasn't so nice. What can I say? <laughs> But what I loved was the conference. This was actually celebrating our 100th anniversary as a fellowship of Christian assemblies. That's a group of churches that we're affiliated with. And uh, it was really great to see that the conference was the promise of God still stands. Isn't that awesome? That God is faithful. And when we partake in communion, what we're really doing is reminding ourselves that we're in covenant relationship with God. And maybe today you're here and you feel like, you know, there's things in my life that ought not to be. And I want to just encourage us that we can renew our covenant with God. That we can say, Lord, for the things that I have done wrong, would you forgive me? Lord, my longing and desire and aspiration is to be right with you. To do what's right in your sight. To have relationship with you. To experience your promises in my life. And Jesus, you know, he came to save us from our sins. How many say, thank God? because I need saving. <laughs> and I'm sure some of you feel exactly the same way. We need God's help. I was chatting with someone the other day. They said, the reason why I attend church is not because I'm so good, but because I'm bad. I actually need it. And there's nothing wrong with that. We actually all have a little badness that needs to be corrected in our lives, and we need God's grace to operate in our lives. And on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and said, this is my body which is broken for you. How many are happy that Jesus laid down his life so that you and I could be reconciled to God our Father and to have a relationship with him, not only for time, but for all of eternity. And so, Father, we thank you for this emblem that reminds us today and represents your broken body. And as we partake of this emblem, I pray today that all the benefits of this covenant, this new covenant that you've given to us would be ours today. May health healing, restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness, all be ours today in Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat this bread together. The Bible says in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this is my blood which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as, as, you know, as we do this, we are reminding ourselves, first of all, that Jesus died, he rose again, but he's coming back again. And I love this about communion. We have to remind ourselves because how many, as we look at our world today, sometimes we can live in despair. Isn't that true? There doesn't seem to be a lot of hope, but can I tell you, in Christ, there's hope. We have a good end in store for us and uh, we need to celebrate that. We need to live in the blessed hope, which is what? That Christ is gonna come back and restore our broken planet. So Lord, I thank you for this cup reminding us of this beautiful covenant relationship we have with you. And now I pray, Father, for every heart. If there's despair and discouragement, it could even be depression and disillusionment, I pray today that you would replace those elements in our soul with hope, with joy, with peace, and with love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink this cup together. If you could hang on to these little cups and later on just uh, deposit them on the way out, we have a container for that as well. And this morning, 
Uh, we have a dedication service, and I'm going to have Avin and Sharman uh, Diaz. They're coming to dedicate their daughter, Calista, and uh, this is so exciting. Wow, look at this. Great, I'm going to give this to you before I forget. Oh, look at this beautiful little girl. Isn't this great? Bringing our children to the house of God. I think that's an amazing thing. And you know, God does command us to do the very thing that you are doing as a mother and a father, that you're going to do all that you can to raise your daughter in the fear and the nurture of Almighty God. And the Old Testament teaches us that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus reinforced that when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, that's it, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, these actually encapsulate the whole Old Testament. Just those two statements, those two commandments, they actually summarize the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And then it says here, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. In other words, we need to internalize them. They need to be applied into our lives. We're to impress them on our children. Well, how do you do that? How do you impress truth into the lives of our children? Well, it says we talk about it when we're at home, when we walk along the road, when we lie down, when we get up. And so I believe that modeling is the most profound way to actually instill truth into people's lives, that people need to see a living model. We embody it. We, we reflect it. We're discipling our children just by the way we live. If prayer is important to you, prayer will be important to our children. If scripture reading is important to you and you bring her in and you start reading the Bible together and praying together as a family, she's going to grow up saying, this is normalcy, right? And I think that's powerful. So the purpose of a child dedication, I think, is twofold. First of all, you're dedicating yourselves to God, saying, yes, Lord, by your grace and help, I'm going to do all that I can to live a Christian life and to pass that on to my child. And number two, we are dedicating your child. We're asking God for mercy and grace because how many know even the most godly parents can have wayward children? And so we need to pray and ask God for grace and God's help in the life of our child so that Christ could be revealed to them and make, be made known to them so that it continues on to the next generation. She has to have her own personal encounter with Christ. And that's true for every child in our, in our congregation. Everyone needs their own personal experience with God. And as a show of support, I'm going to have our congregation rise. As you say your pledge before Almighty God, may you say we do to the following. Do you recognize as your, this, your beautiful daughter as a gift from God and give heartfelt thanks for God's blessing? How do you say your name? Callista? Callista. Are you here today to dedicate Callista to the Lord who was given to you by him? Are you here today to pledge as parents that you will bring her up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord? And do you promise to give her every possible benefit of home, school, and the life of the church? And are you here today to ask God's blessing upon her life and to guide and guard and direct through all of her years? Okay, listen, pastor's going to just take your hand. We're going to pray for you, okay? Let's pray. Father, we just pray for Callista right now. We ask that your grace would be revealed to her at a young age. I pray that she would love you with all of her heart, that she would grow up to be an amazing woman of God, and that you would use her for your honor and glory through all of her years. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen. Good girl, yeah. Amen. Thank you so much. Bless you.
Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's great. Well, I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. Uh, I was gone for three weeks, and so I decided, uh, you know, some people say, what do you do in your holidays, Pastor? I do all kinds of things. But one thing I don't neglect to do is read my Bible. And as I was reading through the book of Judges, I felt a little prompting by the Holy Spirit. And so I felt, you know, when I get back home, I'm going to go to the book of Judges and share some thoughts with you. You know, stories told of a minister is walking down the street when he comes to a group of boys. There are about 10, uh, you know, about a dozen boys, and they're between the ages of 10 and 12 years old. And, the, you know, they're kind of gathered around this old dog. And the minister, of course, he's kind of concerned. Are these boys hurting this dog? And so he says to the boys, what are you doing with the dog? One of the boys says, well, mister, he said, this is just an old stray, and we all want him, but only one of us can take him home. So we've decided that whichever one of us can tell the biggest lie gets to keep the dog. Of course, the minister is disturbed by this contest that's going on, you know, the biggest lie for the dog. He says, you boys shouldn't have a contest telling lies like that. Don't you know, boys, it's a sin to lie? And then he launched into a little sermonette and, you know, tried to end his, and, he, and he's trying to convince them, you know, to stop telling lies. And he ends his little dissertation to the boys with, when I was your age, I never told a lie. It was dead silence for about a minute. Minister's starting to think, maybe I'm getting through to these kids when the smallest boy gave a deep sign and said, okay, mister, you can have the dog. Now, now, why do we relate to that? Why is that funny to us? Because we all know that it's so easy to mess up in life. Isn't that the truth? It certainly is. And sin is actually something that's common to all of us. How many say amen to that? We could honestly agree with the Apostle Paul, all of sin, we've all messed up. And what is true about us individually is magnified collectively. How many say that's true? I mean, if we're creating a problem and a group of us start creating a problem, pretty soon we got a big problem. And I, I feel today that most of us, as strong believers, what we're doing is we're literally heart-stricken and sick. We're bemoaning the direction of our society. How many say that's true? Anybody here kind of bemoaning, grieving over, you're cringing as you see the national calamities affected by sinful values. Anybody here relating to what I'm saying? Anybody here? Come on now. Absolutely, yes. There's a few heads that are nodding. And I, I think that's true. Uh, now, but what's the answer? I mean, we all see the problem. How many go? I see the problem. But what is the answer to the effects of moral deterioration upon our society and upon our country? I think God begins by addressing each of us as individuals. He always starts with individuals. You know, I think we want to see transformation happen, but apart from God bringing about true change in the human heart, we're never going to see societal change. How many say that's probably true, Pastor? You know, we're going to, you, you may, may be arguing with people, you may be saying that this is not healthy for the society, but ultimately people are generally not persuaded by our arguments. They usually dig in, they entrench, they argue back, you're not getting anywhere, it's frustrating, you're not making any headway. You're going, what's the use? And then maybe we feel like, well, if we can just create these laws or legislate this and create that, and maybe that'll curb this. But the problem is, that doesn't change it. So what I'm trying to say 
is that the answer is probably found a lot closer home. And the answer simply being is that the problem ultimately is not out there. The problem is in here. And when I say that, that gets a little close to home, doesn't it? Now, I, I, you know, I, I can see all the problems out there, but what happens if I say, well, maybe the problem's originating in here? You see, James says, you know, the wars and all of those things that are going on, he says it really starts inside the human heart. Our innermost being needs to be transformed, and when we are transformed, something happens that God begins to move in us and then powerfully through our lives. In Judges chapter 6, we find that Israel had just experienced 40 years of peace and prosperity. How many know that that's what we always want? How many here say, I like peace, I like prosperity? Anybody here besides me like that stuff? Yeah, I think we all want that, but you know, I've discovered something about peace and prosperity. It's not always good for us spiritually. Now it's getting quiet. It seems that when we have everything going our way, it doesn't necessarily bring us closer to God. It tends to allow us to start drifting a little bit to a whole bunch of other things in our lives. And we find ourselves a little further away from God than we would really like to admit. And that's why we really like it, because we want to keep doing those things. And we find here in Judges chapter 6 that a new generation arose that did not understand the danger of compromise. They began to conform to the nations living amongst them in the land of Canaan, and they became, I'm going to use the word, Canaanized. <laughs> what do you mean, Pastor? They began to become just like the people they were designed to displace because of their evil ways. And pretty soon, you know, how many know it's a lot easier to slide into sin than it is to pull people up from sin? I always used to say this when I was a youth pastor. I said, I want to do a little experiment here. I, you know, get the which get the littlest person down below and you're standing on a table, which is it easier to pull somebody up or them to pull you down? And when you do that little experiment, everybody sees it's a lot easier to pull people down than it is to lift them up. And that's true. They began to conform to the nations among them and the Bible basically talks about this idea of spiritually being compromised or living a worldly life, worldliness. You know, a lot of times we read scripture, we don't even understand what we're reading. Listen to what James says. You adulterous people, he's writing to believers, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity? To be at enmity with somebody means you're at odds with them. You're in, you're in conflict with them. You're at enmity against God. There's a battle going on, and now you're God's enemy. Anyone, he says, therefore, anyone chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, we read those words, and we say, well, what does it mean to be a friend with the world. Well, the world, I think we have to sometimes divine, uh, define what we're talking about here, and that's when you and I begin to embrace the values of the society that's defying and denying God's values. And when we do that, when we embrace a value system that's contrary to God's value system, what we're actually doing is we're in conflict with God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be God's enemy. I don't want to be in conflict with God. I want to be a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. How many say, I want to be a friend of God? And so the Bible says that if we're going to be a friend of God, we need to embrace what God loves. And we need to despise and hate what God hates. God hates certain things. God loves certain things. What are those things? We need to discover them. 
Well, here in Judges, we find out what happens when we're fighting against God and what is the effects of that battle and how sin begins to dominate our lives and it begins to dominate our lives in such a way that they become addictive patterns in our lives. And we're no longer free, we're in bondage. And we get this cycle, and we see it especially in the book of Judges, that when the people of God did what God asked them to do, they were living in a state of freedom and, and blessing, and as soon as they you know, turned their backs on God and embraced what the culture around them was doing, pretty soon they found themselves in bondage, and God allowed oppression to come into their lives. And I think there are some Christians that are struggling with oppression. They need to be set free. We're going to talk about how that comes about. Judges chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he, God, gave them into the hand of the Midianites. It was God that allowed their enemies to oppress them, to dominate them, to rule over them, to restrict them. They were no longer free. They were a captivity. So we see a sin cycle. But the question is, can it be destroyed in our lives? And the answer is, of course it can. But what about in a society? And I think we're going to find out the answer is yes to that as well. And let's take a look at what does it take to be free personally, and what does it take for society to experience freedom? How many think you might be a little interested in finding out how is God ever going to turn the moral rot into something better? How can God do that? And I believe I'm looking at the answer. I'm looking at you, and you are the answer to what's happening in our world today. You just don't know it yet. We're going to find out how that comes about. And I think there are four things that we need to understand in helping us escape personal, and I will call it corporate or societal bondage. And first of all, it's an understanding of the pain that sin causes us. Ultimately, to reject God's way brings about sorrow and loss in life. And we often in our lives deny that we have a problem. But one of the ways of actually overcoming problems is to finally own up and take responsibility and acknowledge, yes, there is a problem. How many know if you're in denial, you can never get better? A lot of people are living in denial today. I don't have a problem. Do you have a problem? And when we act like that, there's just no hope for us. And then there's a lot of people, they, they kind of have a victim's mentality. You know, it's always somebody else's fault. You ever met people like that? They're always blaming somebody else. Isn't that true? And we can do that. And when you do that, you never can get healthy because it's not your problem. It's their problem. You gotta, it's always out there. You know, it's, uh, I won't even go into it, but I'll just share. A friend of mine one time texted me and said, my phone is confused. I don't know. You see, what am I trying to say? We have to take ownership in life. The only problem with being a victim, as I said, is we just don't get better. You may be saying, so what is sin? Because I think it's a term that we're a little confused by today. We know it's a nasty thing, but what is it? And I think the Bible defines it for us as simply not bringing glory to God. But that sometimes is difficult for us to grasp. So I could be maybe define, I'll give you some other verses of Scripture, and I'm summarizing it. Sin is simply a transgression of God's law. In other words, we're breaking the law of God. We're, tr we're, we're not doing what God's asking us to do. We're not demonstrating. Here's another way we, we express sin. We're just not trusting God. You think there's a lot of times in our lives where we simply don't trust God? I think we probably sin more than we realize. We don't think about it. Or maybe knowing what the right thing to do, but yet we don't do it. How many times have we had every good intention to do this thing, but we just don't do it? That's called the sin of omission. 
You know, a lot of times as Christians, we say, well, I'm not really that bad. I'm not doing these bad things. But God is looking at what we're not doing as well. Maybe there's something that God designed for you to do, and he's looking for you to do it, but, you know, we're not doing it. Are we doing what God is requiring or requesting or asking of us? Because the Bible says for him to know to do good and not to do it, that's sin. I'm quoting from Scripture. In the book of Romans, we read this downward cycle of sin. And while we're turning from God to really, when we don't trust God, what are we trusting in? Ourselves. That's an idol. If we trust in anything but God, it's an idol. We, we move into idolatry. And, and Romans talks about that in chapter 1. He says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And remember, we define fools not as someone that's stupid, but someone who's not fearing God, someone who's not trusting God. It says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And what he means by that is, you know, we think of they're worshiping a human statue. No, it's not that. We're worshiping secular humanism. We're worshiping the ideology that we don't need God in this life. And when you have a lot of prosperity, a lot of times people don't feel the need for God in their lives, and they feel they can manage their life without God. And many North Americans act as if God doesn't exist. And so we can be very practical atheists. We live as if God doesn't exist. Or we can worship things that are images that are made like birds and animals and reptiles. And then God says this, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So God says there's a human problem in the heart and it's, there's a, there's a uh, desire, but it's an evil desire. It's not a desire to bring glory to God and help to other people. Many times it's a very self-centered and selfish desire and we end up degrading ourselves here, it says, to sexual impurity, and we degrade our bodies with one another. So there's a downward cycle. And God gives us over to it. You know, God doesn't step in and go, oh, I see all this bad stuff happening, I'm gonna stop it. You know what God does? He lets us sin, and then he lets the consequences of sin take over in our lives until pretty soon sin is dominating our lives, and we live a life of brokenness and addiction. All of those things start happening. And we see it all over our culture. Our culture is suffering deeply today because we're choosing our own way rather than God's way. Here we find that there's, you know, this is actually a grace to give us up to our sin. You go, well, why is it a grace? Because until we feel pain, we rarely change. Isn't that true? You know, the doctor, you go into the office, he tells you, hey, you got to do this about your, your, your condition. I want you to behave in a certain way, and we just brush it off and go, I'm not changing how I live. Hey, you know what happens? You suffer a consequence, and pretty soon it gets more severe. I could go down in every aspect of life. We could talk about it relationally, physically, spiritually, morally, in every which direction. You know, God has a way for us to live that's healthy. And in the end, it brings freedom and joy and hope and peace and love and all the good stuff, but we have to do what God's asking of us. Here in the book of Judges, we read, they did evil in the eyes of God. God handed them over to their enemies. In verse two, it says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, because the pressure was so great, the Israelites began to prepare shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. I mean, these guys were in desperate shape, but notice at to this point, they're still trying to manage the crisis. How many know you and I will try to manage our crisis until we can't do it anymore? And we see that with the Israelites. 
Because God was not central in their lives, they were oppressed. And in verse 3 it says, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the land. And it says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they finally cried out to God for help. Isn't that good? Lord, help us. Isn't that awesome when you and I get to that desperation point where we say, okay, God, I can't do it anymore. That's a, that's a beautiful place. That is when hope starts moving into our lives. God, I need you. Please help me. The pressure caused them to look up. And I think it generally takes crisis to get our attention. I would say that's true. Uh, there's a few people, I think they, they can listen to something, they make minor corrections, but for most people, they just keep going on their merry way until the pressure is so great, you're forced to cry out to God. Here in our text, it says that they were reduced to find shelter when invaded. Though they could not always protect their crops or livestock, they made an effort to take refuge when they were invaded, and there were moments when the speed of the invasion was so quick and fast that lives were lost. You say, how do you know that? Because in chapter 8, this is what Gideon tells us. And then, and then he asked Zeba and Zamuna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? And he said, men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. And Gideon said, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. People were losing their lives. This was a desperate time. This was a time of crisis. But the people now recognize that. So Gideon, as well as the people of God in that day, knew the pain and suffering coming from a result of the nation collective sin, which had been to turn their backs on God. They were directly impacted by it. What's the second thing we need to understand? Not only the pain that sin causes, but God sends a prophetic message. God challenges us as his people. You know, it's one thing to know we have a problem. It's quite another to accept our responsibility and then to do the right thing, to respond in the right way. Look at Gideon's response to the angel. First of all, he's a little angry. He's got a lot of doubt. Uh, he's kind of concerned. He, you know, his question is, hey, if God really loved me, why is he letting me go through this thing? How many get the idea that God's even getting blamed for some of this stuff? How many know a lot of times in our lives, our problems, we blame God for them? Come on now. I think God gets a lot of blame. Just my thought. God just 6.13, he says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? So what is he saying? You know, why are we in this state of, of difficulty if you're with us, God? Can I tell you, even in our sin, God is with us. But what God is saying is, you know, sin has a consequence to it. And then he goes on to say to God, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, uh, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Gary Gingrid points out, until now, every time God's people had called to him, this is in the book of Judges, he had sent a judge or a deliverer to change their condition. Not this time. God sends a prophet because his people needed repentance more than they needed relief. That's a very powerful statement. You know, sometimes when we're praying, God, relieve, relieve me of my pressures, relieve me. Maybe God is saying, maybe you need to identify what's really going on here. Is this a consequence? I'm not saying all sickness, sorrow, difficulty is a consequence of sin, but there are times it is. And we need to say, God, is this what's happening to me? And if so, show me. And if so, help me to turn my back on that and to turn to you. 
Now, they needed to understand before they were delivered why they were in the mess they were in. How many think that's good? Yeah, this is a learning curve. God's trying to teach us something. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, we already read that. Then it says, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors. Now, by the way, how many are pretty impressed that God took a nation of slaves and he actually delivered them for the, most, the strongest, most militaristic, the greatest world power at that time? He actually delivered them from them. How many are impressed with that? That's why the psalmist says, some trust in horses, some in chariots, but I will depend on the name of the Lord my God. I'm gonna put my trust in God. Folks, you and I can never go wrong when we put our trust in God, even though we may feel that we're up against it. The odds are against us. If God is on your side, if God is for you, then who can be against you? You and I need to have that quiet confidence. He said, I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. I took those nations out. You defeated them. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. In other words, don't capitulate. Don't, don't allow their lifestyle to seduce you so that you live like them and do what they do because that's how they're going to defeat you. Because if you do what's right in my eyes, nothing can defeat you. How many think this is amazing? If I walk with God, all hell can break out against me and it's not going to affect me. But if I allow temptation to succumb to it, then I will be defeated by all those forces of darkness. That's the problem. But you said you didn't listen to me. Well, we've already talked about blaming our problems on others or God. Here the prophet is telling them it's their disobedience that's causing them the pain. When we look around our nation today, where do we tend to put the blame? The prime minister, the premier, the, you know, we got all the things that are going, you know, I'm going to say something's going to shock you. They are not the problem. I'm looking at the problem. When I get up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, I'm the problem. You see, when you and I stop blaming everybody else for what's happening and the moral deterioration of our nation to start to take ownership and say, what about me? What am I doing? How am I making a difference? Am I living the right way? Am I? And I'm going to talk to you about the power that's going to change this broken society. There is a power. And am I availing myself of that power in my life? And am I actually fulfilling the purposes of God for my life? And when I'm doing that, when I'm availing the power and I'm living in the purposes of God, then I become an instrument in the hands of Almighty God to transform not only my life and family, but my society around me. That's what we need to know. So let's move to the third point. It's the people God chooses to use in leading us. How often God brings people into our lives to help us address issues in our soul. I'm glad for that. He doesn't leave us alone. He does bring others in our lives. But I want to say right now, there's no perfect people. Can we stop looking at leaders and saying, you know, if they were only better, if they could only do this, if they could only do that. Friends, they're just people. They're fellow strugglers. 
they're also engaged in the battle with their own soul. The first thing I notice is that the people of, that God chooses to lead are usually those who are dealing with the problem in the best way they know how. And it was that kind of a person who was concerned about what was going on and what was about do, uh, and was doing what he could do that God appeared to. I think it's fascinating. Look at Judges chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah and that belonged to Joash the Asbarite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midians, Midianites. So what's going on here? Well, Gideon is in a wine press. You know what a wine press is? In the ancient world, they had a little area, pour the grapes in, people get up there, munch, stomping away, and it's a little press so that they could make wine. And it, this one was low enough down that Gideon could be down low trying to hide from the enemy and he's trying to winnow the grain so he'd have a little food for his family. Here was a guy that obviously recognized the danger he was living in. So he's not in any sort of denial that there's a problem, but he's wondering in his mind, why is God letting all this happen? We've already heard the conversation he had with God. Now, what struck me as I read this verse the other day, and the angel of the Lord came and sat down. He was there looking at Gideon working in the wine press. Next verse says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. So obviously he was there, but Gideon didn't see him. Can I just stop and say something? God is here. And God is in your life. And God is in your trouble. And God is in your pain. And God is in your sorrow. He's sitting there. He's watching you. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's there the whole time. You know, I believe God sends angels to help us. We just don't see them. They're there. We have no idea how many accidents have been averted, how many times God's protected us because he has sent angels to do things for us. We just never saw it. You know, we just go, boy, that was a close call. You ever have those moments and go, wow, that was a close call. What do you think God was doing? He was watching over you. He's with you. He was with Gideon. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he made himself, he manifested himself so Gideon could see him. And the Lord said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Does anybody get the irony of the statement? He's hiding in the wine press. Can I just say something? You and I don't see ourselves the way God sees us. I want to say that right now. Most of us in this room, one of the reasons why we struggle in our walk is because we feel unworthy and we feel inadequate. Let's be honest. Why would God use me? Who am I that God should use me? Come on, let's be honest. How many here, you feel that in your heart? I'm speaking to you right now. You're saying, I feel unworthy and I feel inadequate. I would imagine if I made you raise your hands, the majority of people would raise their hands right now. You said, why would God use me? Who am I? That's exactly how Gideon felt. He was hiding in the wine press. God says, you know what I see in your life, Gideon? I see that you're a mighty warrior. Gideon goes, are you kidding me? Everything about Gideon's life revealed to him the opposite of what God was speaking into his life. You know, a lot of times we see ourselves so differently than how God sees us. God's calling begins by calling us something that we may not believe about ourselves. I love that. You know what I'm going to say to us? When we read the word of God, start believing what God says about us. And 
because we don't believe these things that God says about us, we start living beneath what God has in mind for us. God says, you're my son, you're my daughter. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. You're in my, you belong to my family. You belong to me. A lot of us in this room, we have no sense of belonging. You know why God created the church? He wants to create a sense of belonging. He wants you to know that you are loved, that you are accepted. You know, he wants to commission everyone in this room, listen to me very carefully now, that when you and I receive his faith by grace, that it starts to mature to the point where you and I start learning how to love people we didn't even like. Come on now. That's exactly what he's trying to do to you. He's trying to teach you to love people you don't even like. He's trying to make you exactly like he is. Patient. You go, I'm not patient. He's trying to help you to have self-control. I'm out of control, Pastor. You should see my life. It's a mess. No, he's trying to make you self-controlled. He's trying to create endurance in your life. That's why he's letting a few things happen to you so that you can exercise spiritual muscle. There's so many things God is doing. But I want to just say something to you, that God is so in love with you and so committed to you and, and has a vision of what you're going to become. You need to begin to embrace God's vision of what you're going to become, what you are and are becoming. Isn't that beautiful? You know what you are? You're God's son or daughter, and he's making you to be just like Jesus. How many think that's amazing? How many, how many are pretty impressed with Jesus? He's courageous. He's loving, he's forgiving, he's patient, he's understanding, he's wise. He's making you like that. Is that beautiful? I love it. What a beautiful picture. Many of us, I said, we feel unworthy, inadequate to actually do what God's challenging us to do. How many people will try to have their act together before they really serve God? Can I tell you something? If you're waiting for that, you'll never serve God. Because you'll never have your act together. How's that? Actually, how you get your act together is by walking in obedience with God. And while you're doing it, you're getting your act together. How's that? And you know what's helping you get your act together? The Holy Spirit. We're going to get to him. The reality is that God comes to us in our weakness and sin, and he says, come to me. Don't you love it? So he's not picking you because you're so amazing. He's picking you because he loves you. There's a big difference. And he picks you and loves you, and you become amazing. I love that about God. And it's only as we acknowledge our need for God and receive what he provides for us that we can ever succeed in what God is calling us to do. And so it's interesting. Paul says it this way. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. So God gives you his grace. It's a gift. That's what grace means, gift. He's giving you a gift. Not by works, not something you're doing so that no one can boast. This is not something you're doing. But then he says this, for we are God's handiwork. See, God's working on us. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That tells me God has a purpose for you and for me. Am I doing what God's calling me to do? That's the big question in my life. You know, I'm, I'm a certain age in my life. I've been pastoring a long time. I'm praying and I'm saying, okay, God, what's the next step? I don't think you're done with me. 
What do you want me to accomplish? What is it you're asking me to do? You know, he could just say, well, keep doing what you're doing. That's good. Or maybe he's got an, an assignment that says, I want you to add this to your assignment. I don't know, but let's keep asking. And then we go in the strength of resources that we have. Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out, out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Here's the good news. You go, well, I look at myself, I'm not up for the job. God goes, that's okay. Just go, I'm sending you. I'm gonna be with you. And God says, if he's with you, you're gonna get the job done. I'm gonna go, I like that. Why is that? Because God's gonna help us do it. Uh, Gideon's uh, response is, pardon me, but how can I save uh, Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. In other words, what's, who is he looking at? Who is he looking at? Himself. Do you know why you and I don't do certain things? Because we look at ourselves and go, I can't do it. It's beyond my pay grade. This is way beyond me, God. God says, stop looking at yourself. Lord answered, I'll be with you. I'll be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, I don't know if you've read that story, but the Midianites were just like everywhere. They were like the grasshoppers that covered the fields. I mean, they were just a huge army. Israel was little. He said, you know what? I'm going to use you. Gideon goes, really? Isn't that powerful? Why can God do the impossible with you and me? He's with us. He's with us. Cheryl Brown says it this way, the Lord's commission work, works together with human compassion and awareness of needs. But it is one thing to point out a need and another to meet that need. Gideon was not eager to get involved, partly because of his self-doubt and partly because of the magnitude of the task. Then we need to destroy the things in our lives that are impeding us from doing what God wants. There's things in the way. This is so important. You know, the same night the Lord said to him, now take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's idol to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build the proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. I just put down, we have to destroy these idols in our lives. That's the key to moving forward. And how many know that's a challenging thing to do, to get rid of the idols in our own soul? Michael Wilcox says, if they trust one set of worldly forces to give them prosperity, uh, oh, sorry, <clears throat> I just wanted to say this. How many know the bull is pretty key to the flock? It's a reproduced, that's a pretty costly aspect. And you know, sin is costly and the price to be reconciled to God is costly. It costs God his son. Let me move on. The people of the town now demanded that jo Joash be killed because of what he did. And so Michael Wilcox says, if they trust one set of worldly forces to give them prosperity, they can hardly be surprised if another set takes it away. So God ordains that those whose hearts are set on the Canaanite gods of peace, plenty, and comfort shall regularly suffer the Midianite scourges of strife, deprivation, and misery. Wow. What's he saying? When you have the wrong goals in life, you get the wrong ends. That's powerful to consider. I think sometimes we have bought into, I'm going to call it the American dream, the North American dream. And it's not God's dream for us. God has a different dream. Amen? 
God, deliver me from that dream. Help me to have your dream. Let me just move on here. Because I think there's one thing I want to get to right now. It's really important. And it's simply this. The power God uses to enable us to succeed. You know, I can talk about this, but it's not going to help us if we don't know how to put it into practice. The answer to every situation is God, his presence. Verse 34, Gideon's not going to fight with the Midianites. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet summoning the Asbarites to follow him. What's going on here? Listen, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Literally in the Hebrew, the, the spirit of God clothed himself with Gideon. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had waited to, in, in Jerusalem until what? You're clothed with power from on high. Wait until the Spirit of God comes upon you. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, you're going to be able to do things you could never do before. I mean, this is really neat. I like this. That's why Paul says it this way. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sinful nature. What's he saying to us? Folks, what we need in our lives is to be full of the Spirit. When we're full of the Spirit, we can overcome sinful desires. That's what he's telling us. So when you and I say, well, I just can't overcome this, I'm going, you can if God's Spirit is upon you. If you give yourself to the Spirit of God, if you allow the Spirit of God to rule and reign in your life, it's going to happen. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans. Those who live according to the flesh or have their sinful nature have their minds set on what the sinful nature desires of the flesh. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what, God, what the Spirit desires. There's only two desires now, the sinful nature or the Spirit of God's nature within us. We have to decide which nature do we want to have predominance in our lives. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it, the flesh, or our sinful nature. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. How do you overcome these things in our lives? The Holy Spirit. We yield to the Holy Spirit. We say, okay, Holy Spirit, I want your will. I want your presence. I want to do your agenda. Now, what happens? Well, the societal problem, this personal problem that Gideon was addressing is also a picture of the battle that we're engaged in. Do you realize that? It's a battle that is often fought within our own souls. The road to victory is taking personal responsibility without blaming other people. In other words, we confess our sins. It's accepting God's assessment of our soul's condition and accepting God's provision, his presence, his sacrifice on our behalf, and then allowing the power of the Spirit to break away from the influences that are keeping us trapped and now begins to create a new pattern in our lives. So the true nature of societal change is changed lives, changing lives. What am I telling you? I'm giving you a blueprint. Here it is. Do you want to see this culture that we're living in changed? How many would like to see Canada come back to God? Here's the answer. As we change, we change other people. Listen to what Paul says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone 
who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. What's he saying to us? You know what our problem is? All we're doing is calling out the bad things our society's doing. We're just alienating them and they're ignoring us. What we need to be doing is loving people and preaching the gospel. Now, some people will get upset. I can tell you, the gospel has its own set of offense, right? But it's powerful. And if you and I are empowered by the Spirit, and isn't that what the New Testament church was, empowered by the Spirit? What did they do? They went everywhere preaching. Not just the preachers. Everybody was gossiping or preaching the gospel. And it was impacting the whole society. So let's stand this morning. And I'm trying to lay out for us a game plan. How many, are, how many are understanding what I'm trying to tell us? I'm trying to explain to us that the answer to our social problems is not out there, it's in here. How many heard that? Everybody hear that? Okay, good, step one. Step two, how many here this morning, you're willing to say, I don't feel adequate or worthy? That's you, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Lots of people raising their hand. Okay. God says, you're right. You're not worthy and you are inadequate. Don't get bummed about that. Don't get hung up about that. I've got an answer for that. You say, what's the answer? Turn to me, God says. Turn to me. I'm going to empower you by my presence. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. And when you're a spirit person, you can do what is humanly impossible. You can become a superhero. Right? How do you do that? Now you're empowered by God's Spirit and you're doing what God wants you to do and you're speaking to people the way God's leading you and sharing and God is working powerfully through you. And listen to me when I'm going to say something. When you speak God's Word to people, it's not you speaking anymore. It's God speaking through you because now He's clothed you. And he's living within you and God is speaking through you. And it's the power of God that's being released from your life and you're speaking into people's lives. Now, what's the, what's the end result? Did people walk away from Jesus? Yes, they did. They turned their back on him and walked away. But many people repented and began to follow him. We need to understand. We've got to stop looking at results. You go, well, I must have failed. This person turned their back. No, we can't go on how they respond. The question is, am I doing and speaking what God is asking me to do and speak? Are we catching on? And instead of criticizing the culture, we got to stop that. It's not doing any good. We can keep calling out all the ills we want to, but I think what we need to do is look at our souls and say, okay, God, what's in my life that's wrong? i got to tear down the idols in my own soul, and i got to pray that God's Spirit comes upon me so that I can begin to communicate the good news of Jesus. And when the good news of Jesus starts coming into the society, the society becomes impacted and transformed. Are we catching the vision? How many are catching it? How many are seeing it? Are we understanding it? How many say, I need help for this? This is beyond my pay grade, Pastor. This is, I feel insufficient and inadequate. Guess what? Join the club. We are all there. But I want to pray today. I want to pray God's Spirit come upon you. How many here say, okay, I'm ready. I want the Holy Ghost to come. I, oh yeah, I know He's living in you, but I need an empowerment of the Holy Spirit today, Pastor. 
I'm raising my hand. I'm saying, okay, Lord, let's raise our hands. Let's say, okay, Holy Spirit, I need your power right now to break the shackles of sin in my soul. How many say yes, amen? Some of you in your heart say, amen, Holy Spirit, come break the shackles that are locking me into bondage, locking me into addiction. Set me free, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Set us free, Lord. And then I pray right now that you would break the shackles of fear in our heart because we're afraid to stand up for you. We're afraid to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that's lost. But when we speak the words of love and life, Father, darkness is dispelled. People come into your kingdom. People are set free. People are saved. People are delivered. People are healed. Marriages are restored. Relationships are repaired. Father, I pray that today your spirit would come upon us like you did in the day of Ezekiel, that we would become a mighty army in your mighty presence, oh God, and your spirit would begin to shake these bones of ours, oh God, and life would pour forth from us. And Lord, we would stop whining and complaining and criticizing and bickering, but oh God, that we would have a vision of how our society is to change. And we have failed you, Lord. We have failed you mightily because we have been silenced and we have taken other means and methods to bring about change, but it's not working. And we've been questioning, where are you, God? And you said, I've been sitting here watching you all along. And I pray today that you would manifest yourself to us and make yourself real to us. And we would hear this clear call to go and make disciples, to go out and speak your words of life. We now thank you for the empowering and clothing presence of the Holy Spirit to help us overcome our sin, our folly, our weaknesses, our inadequacies, and our insufficiencies. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.